rainy, gloomy Sunday morning. Did anyone else question whether they uh, were going to get out of bed this morning? Yep. Okay. Me too. You're in a good spot. You're okay. I, 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 was, I questioned for 45 minutes whether I was going to get out of bed today, actually. So if you guys are there, we're in a good spot together. Um, I'm glad that we get to gather together, that we get to open up the Word of God because it has everything that we need in it of God's good promises for life and godliness for us. And we get to hear from God this morning through His Word and by His Spirit. And so I'm so delighted that we get to open God's Word and examine it and apply it to our lives together. You know, I play this game with my kids, uh, and they know that I love them, but I like to make this list of all the things I love before I get to them. And each time I tell them something that uh, I love, they shake their head knowing that it's actually them that they love, right? So I tell them I love soccer, and they just shake their heads. And I tell them I love tennis, and they just shake their heads. And I tell them I love pizza, and they just shake their heads. And, and I do, I love all those things, but, but I also love my kids, right? And so um, it, it isn't the same type of love for them as it is for all those other things. And so it got me thinking, you know, I wonder what, our, I wonder what the world thinks about love. And I thought that a good demonstration of what the world thinks about love would come in the, in the way of love songs, titles of songs with love in it. And so here is a yummy array of the, of the world's perspective of love. Consider some of these. Uh, John Legend's We Need Love. Okay, that's positive. The Beatles' All You Need Is Love. Uh, Demi Lovato's I Love Me, okay? Uh, there's Foreigner, I Want to Know What Love Is. No, no, no. Uh, there's uh, Khalid's Love Lies. Uh, there's Selena Gomez's Same Old Love. There's Lady Gaga's Stupid Love. There's, you know, from the 1980, the, the Jay Giles Band, Love Stinks. Jay Giles, that's fine. I know the song, I just know the, the, the person who's singing it. Uh, or Bon Jovi, You Gave Love a Bad Name, right? Or Jennifer Rush's The Power of Love, right? It's, it, with all these types of things, it's easy to be confused about what love is. We like to use the term loosely, and we don't do it very well. And so when we see the command in Scripture that Christians are called to love, it's often too vague to have real meaning in our lives. But if we want to follow Jesus, then love must be defined and lived out. And so that's what our job is this morning. Our job is to think about what love is. And we have been in our core values, uh, the, the series that we uh, went through kind of four years ago, different passages, but same ideas, and we're asking ourselves, what do we want to be known for as a church? What are the things about us that when people come into contact with us or come to church on a Sunday morning or see us at respects or see us on the soccer field, what do they want to know of us? 
And the thing that we want to think about this morning is the call for us to be known by our humble love. We all want to be known by a number of things. Humble love is one of the most important. So let me give you a big idea of where we're going. We're going to look at the Gospel of John uh, just at a few verses, verses 12 to 17, and we're going to look at how love is defined, how it is lived out, and why that matters for us. But let me give you the roadmap of where we're headed so that if you fall asleep, if you have to leave early, you're wondering why I'm standing up here talking, this is it. This is what we want you to walk away with this morning. We are called to humbly love one another because the plan of God revealed in Jesus is to be lived out in his followers, meaning you and me. We are called to humbly love one another because the plan of God revealed in Jesus is to be lived out in Jesus's followers. And so we're going to look at what that looks like together. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to John chapter 15, and we're going to begin in verse 12. Let me pray for us as we dive into God's word. Lord, we ask this morning that your kindness would, would, would show itself today by your spirit being at work in our hearts, that we would not just read the words on the page, we would not intellectually assent to, to what it says, but that, Lord, we would be moved and compelled by the way that Jesus has loved us, that it would move us and compel us to then love one another in a similar manner, in a way that even highlights your love for us. God, that doesn't happen by our own strength. It happens supernaturally when your spirit is working through your word in the hearts of your people. And so, God, we pray that that would happen today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here, we're going to read the first uh, three verses, and here's what it says in John chapter 15, beginning in verses 12 uh, through 14. This is Jesus speaking. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Actually, let's just even stop right there for a moment. Uh, let's look at this expression of the kingdom. Now, we're jumping into John chapter 15 in the middle of the Gospel of John, and, and we may not be as familiar with it, and so trying to jump on the interstate, you, you, you need an on-ramp to get going, right? Uh, the Gospel of John is, is one of my favorite books because it's structured around these seven different I am statements that Jesus makes that, that, that reveals that he is the Son of God. Uh, and, and these I am statements are a big deal uh, because uh, it was the very way that God described himself to Moses in the Old Testament at the burning bush. So when Moses asked God who it was, the name of the person who was sending Moses back to Egypt to free the Israelites, God gave him the name I am. And so for Jesus uh, to make these seven I am statements uh, Jesus is declaring himself to be God. And the Gospel of John is, is written to, to a wide audience with the knowledge that these other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, have also already been written. And so the Gospel of John is written probably around sometime around 80, 70, maybe a little bit after that. 
Uh, and the beginning of the Gospel of John begins declaring that Jesus is God. Uh, and the end of the Gospel declares John's purpose. And it's literally to persuade people to put their trust in Jesus alone. John 20 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So our passage this morning comes right after these seven I am statements. And it's part of this upper room discourse where Jesus is with his disciples. He had just finished washing his disciples' feet and they had just finished the Lord's Supper and they're chilling and Jesus is teaching them. And in John 15, Jesus had just made this last I am statement saying that he is the true vine and his followers are the branches and that we are to abide in Jesus and bear fruit. Uh, This is probably a pretty familiar passage if you have been around church for very long. And so by, by um, uh, doing so, by bearing fruit, we actually prove that we are Jesus's disciples. And so then we pick up Jesus's teaching here in verse 12, and he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus' command to those who follow him uh, of the uh, original disciples in the original context in the upper room, but also for us today, Jesus' command is for us to love one another. Right? It's, I could have I done this one. It's more than a feeling. Uh, it's actually a decision for action. The command isn't a suggestion. It isn't an extra credit. It is how we as Christians express and display that we are not enemies of God. Jesus' command isn't a hippie love or just any love in any direction. If you notice in verse 12, it is a concentrated love. It is a specific love. It is a love directed to one another, specifically other disciples of Jesus. Now, Jesus' point is not that love for fellow believers is, exempts us from, from loving those who are our enemies and those who curse us, right? We already know that he calls us to do that. Uh, Jesus' point is not that our love for fellow believers exempts us from loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Uh, After after all, Jesus says that the greatest two commands are to love God and love our neighbor. And to prove that we love God is in how we love others. And so if we want to say, I love God, it must include loving other believers. Otherwise, we're just lying to each other. Right? There's this unbreakable chain. Love for God is tied and verified by love for other believers. Right? It sounds kind of cliche. It's so obvious. 
But I'm convinced that too often we ignore it, not because it's cliche, but actually because we love ourselves more. And we often refuse to love other believers. I'm actually convinced that we want to say nice things sometimes, but too often we don't live it out. In fact, you can guarantee that when we refer to other believers in our body as Satan incarnate, we should not only examine whether we have love for other believers, we should also examine whether we have love for God himself. And then change from saying that ever again about fellow blood-bought believers. So if we look at our passage, the call isn't just to love one another, is it? There's a clear guideline to what loving one another looks like, isn't there? Loving one another involves the way that Jesus has loved us. And so the type of love that we are to have towards each other, towards one another, look around the room. This is not some abstract love someone we don't know. This is the people in this building, in this worship center that we worship together with. The love that we are commanded to do towards one another is defined by Jesus, not anything that we want to call love. And I want to highlight three ways that Jesus has loved us. The first is that Jesus loves us with a participation love. I couldn't come up with a better name for it. It's not alliterated. If you have a better name for it, you can, you can tell me after the service. In just a few verses earlier, in verse 9 of John chapter 15, Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And in fact, early in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3, Jesus said that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So the Father loves the Son by involving him in redemption and giving all things into his hand. And in the same way, Jesus has loved us. Jesus has called us into his kingdom to be a picture of God's love to the world and to give us everything that we need for life and godliness which indeed he has actually given us. He has given gifts to the church. And so to be part of the kingdom of God is really itself a, a picture of God's pure love. To lack nothing that we need as a believer to follow Jesus is to know Jesus' love. So for us to love one another as Jesus has loved us, it is by being an active help in one another's spiritual lives. We are to pray for one another. We're to ask spiritual questions to one another. We're to read good Christian books together. We're to read the Bible together. Because it isn't biblical love if we never get to the eternal parts of our lives. Talking about everything in our lives but the Lord falls short of the of the love that we're to have with one another. So the best place to do this, although there's lots of ways that we can do this, let me highlight one. Life groups. Be a part of one. Be open and ask hard questions. Share your struggles. Share your joys. Wrestle with the Bible with others. 
Let other believers speak into your life to do deliberate spiritual good. But the thing with the Father's love towards the Son is that it's also unending, isn't it? Jesus has already described our relationship with Jesus like a vine, but, but all those metaphors break down eventually, right? The, the agricultural metaphor has its limitations. It doesn't depict the unmeasurable love that Jesus has for his disciples. As the Father has loved me, Jesus said, with an unending love, we too are to love one another. So as a quick litmus test of how we're doing, how quickly do you push people aside when they frustrate you here? What do you do with the individual who constantly grates at you here at church? Do you have relationships with other Christians where you refuse to reconcile or where you refuse to forgive? If you do, know that the type of love that you are displaying is self-love but not Jesus' love. After all, how can we say we love God if we act like enemies towards someone who is blood-bought, spirit-indwelled, and will be with us in eternity? How can we say we love God if we act like enemies towards one another in our words and in our actions? So to say that you love others means that you are going to be available and present and contributing to their lives, and, and you're going to hurt with those who hurt, and you're going to rejoice with those who rejoice. And they're going to do the same for you too. Jesus has also shown us a servant love, right? John chapter 15 is in the context of Jesus having just washed his disciples' feet, showing this servant, humble love towards his disciples, right? They walked everywhere. They wore sandals. Their feet were muddy. They were dirty. They were sweaty. They stepped in dung, and it was gross. And only the lowest of the low washed people's feet. And yet Jesus, of all people, decided to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus has shown us a servant love. Jesus has loved us by serving us in ways that aren't simply showy, but are real and tangible and humble. It, it is near impossible to say that we love one another if we aren't willing to serve one another. If someone is, is going through life-altering struggles, brothers and sisters, do you notice and reach out or just not say anything. You know, um, in the last few weeks, uh, I actually had someone who, who is no longer attending Friendship Baptist Church. Uh, they were going through difficulties. They explicitly said no one reached out to them. Me included, actually. But lots of people knew. Brothers and sisters, if we want to love one another, we must be willing to serve one another in awkward conversations, in hard situations, because Jesus is displaying to us a humble servant love. 
Love is not proud. Jesus' love is not proud. It is serving. It is humble. It's committed. Jesus' love was long-suffering for us on the cross. It was entrusting God with all things. And we are called to imitate Jesus in our love towards others, in our service towards others. We are called to humble love towards each other because Jesus has loved us. So we should be a church that makes normal church statistics wrong here at Friendship. Right? It's normal for 20% of people to do 80% of the church work of serving. Well, let us be a church that blows that out of the water and makes that not normal. But what is actually normal is that our body serves everywhere. So even if you don't have babies, offer to serve one time a month in the nursery. Even if you don't have young children, offer to serve in children's discipleship hour. Even if you don't have children in youth, offer to give rides or, or to help plan games and events. Offer to help count the offering after the service once a month. Offer to be a discipleship group leader in the youth. Offer to help with Awana on Sunday nights. Offer to take minutes at the business meeting. Offer to serve in the sound and the tech area. Not because you think you're amazing at any of it, but because we actually need help in every single one of those areas. And we want to humbly serve because Jesus has humbly washed our feet. Friends, this is countercultural in the world that looks out for number one, isn't it? to show a serving love that, that is a, an active giving up of what seems best or easiest for you for the sake of others? I know of a Christian friend on Facebook. I read it this morning. And they said on their Facebook post, love yourself first. Friends, that is the opposite of what Jesus did. It's the opposite of what he calls us to do. We are to serve for this good, for the sake of others. Maybe the, one of the most practical ways to display your humble, serving, committed love to one another, join Friendship Baptist Church as a gospel partner. Commit to one another through the church's covenant to invest in one another's lives, not when it's easy, but especially when it's necessary. So for example, at, the, uh, at a previous church that I served on staff with, it was my first day on the job, and uh, you know what new pastors do, they look for something to do, because they're like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing right now. And there was this lady, she was in her 80s, her name was Betty, and she was in the hospital. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do, I'm going to go do a hospital visit, that's what good pastors do. And so I went to the hospital, and I didn't know Betty, she didn't know me, and it didn't look good. And so I said, Betty... If, if you don't make it out of this hospital bed and, and you die and you stand before God and, and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And Betty's response was, and this is, this is, this is uh, uh, someone who'd been at the church for 60 years, okay? How many of you are even 60 years old? Don't answer that, right? Okay, this lady had been at the church for 60 years. And she said, well, I was a Sunday school superintendent for 30 years. 30 years. It's like a career. She said, I, I oversaw the women's ministry. I have been attending this church for 60 years. I did this, I did this. 
And everything that was absent was anything that had to do with Jesus or his sacrifice on the cross. And it's my first day on the job, and I'm like, oh, she's not a Christian? Oh, that's awkward. And so I kept visiting her, and I kept reading the Bible with her. And after the, the, the next few weeks, I asked Betty the same thing. And I say, Betty, uh, uh, if you were to die tonight, and, and, and you stand before God, and he says, why should I let you in? What would you say? And she smiled at me, and she said, Brian, you asked me this the first time we met, and I was so wrong. She said, I said everything about me, and now I realize it is only the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. It was, it was amazing. I was like, are you sure about that? And so I had other people ask her questions to verify to make sure that she really had gotten saved. And um, it was this big ordeal at the church, and, and, and I was able to baptize her, and she joined the church by her insistence. Like, she was in a hospital bed. We're like, you don't have to get baptized to be saved. And she's like, no, I need to be. And she's like, and I need to join the church. But here's why I tell you this. We had done a bad job of servantly loving Betty because for 60 years she had attended the church. She started there in the children's Sunday school. She was going there in the youth. And you know what we do with youth? We ask them to serve in a lot of areas. And she had been going here long enough that people just started assuming things about Betty. Well, she's been coming here for 10 years. She must be a Christian Oh, look at the way she served here. She must be saved. Hey, let's ask her to lead the children's discipleship hour. Let's, let's ask her to do this and that. And we actually failed to know her and to humbly serve her by even asking the question of, Betty, do you know Jesus? And praise the Lord, he sustained her life for 80-some years so that she could hear the gospel and be saved. But brothers and sisters, it's, it's not loving just to assume things about one another. It is loving to be willing to have the hard question because you care about their soul. See, love is deliberate. Love is intentional. And over time, we can forget and we can grow callous of the love and the grace of God that we've received if we do not continue to intentionally, humbly love others. Both of those reasons and ways that Jesus has loved us aren't even in our passage exactly. But the one that is in our passage, this third way, is that Jesus speaks of a sacrificial love. Right? Verses 13 and 14 say this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you, Jesus says. So love also refers to Jesus' death on behalf of his friends. Even if the disciples did not fully understand this point when they first heard these words, God demonstrated his love for us, as our call to worship said, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so God's love is displayed for us at the cross because love is shown by what it does, not only by what is said. And so the kingdom of God is actually the greatest picture of love, not just what is the most current love story. If you like Disney Plus, like my family, you know that they just made a remake of West Side Story. And if you remember, it's, it's the modern day version of Romeo and Juliet. But the reality is that true love and real love isn't killing myself because I can't live without you. 
No, that is self-serving. It's, but real love is serving others for their good. And so the expression of the kingdom of God displayed by Jesus to us and then us to one another is to love sacrificially, to humbly love one another because the plan of God revealed in Jesus is to be lived out by one another. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not even a Christian and you're like, you lost me at, you give love a bad name, okay? And you're just, you're trying to figure out what this is but here's the reality. The greatest expression of love that you could ever know is not in a boyfriend or in a girlfriend. It's not even in a parent. It is actually in a savior. The greatest expression of love that you can ever experience is not actually a sexual experience. It is actually gonna be when Jesus is your savior and knowing that he went to the cross for your sins. And so when, when Christians talk about love, uh, it, it is a very specific love. It is the greatest demonstration of love, and that is Jesus at the cross. That is the love that we all, that the world is looking for in all the wrong places. And so if you're a non-Christian here this morning, we're so glad you're here, but I would urge you to compare the type of love that you long for. Compare uh, the type of love that you've experienced and the heartache that comes with it compared to the love of a Savior who promises never to leave you or forsake you, never to abandon you, to know every single thing that you've ever done wrong and yet loves you despite of it. Friends, that is a love unlike anything the world knows. We are called to humbly love one another because the plan of God revealed in Jesus is to be lived out in Jesus' followers. I promise the next two points are really short, okay? Let's look at the second point, this identity in the kingdom. This is verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Right, if there's a kid at on the playground at recess that you didn't want to play with, it was the one who said, you're only my friend if you do exactly what I say. I, after all, that kid wasn't lord over all the kids of the playground. Uh, we were on equal footing. But friendship with Jesus, it, admittedly, is a little bit different since he is the eternally existing son of God. So from verse 13... We already see how Jesus' love is different because it's sacrificial. It's laying down his life for his friends. And so to have Jesus identify his friends as the intended recipients of his love is actually something quite spectacular. Who are Jesus' friends? Well, verse 14 clears it out for, for us. Those who do what Jesus has commanded them. Right? Obedience is not what makes them friends. It's what displays that they are friends. Jesus loved us before we loved him. And Jesus wants us to prove our love by loving others. And so Jesus' friends are then the recipients of his love and they are obedient to him. Recipients of his love in verse 13 and obedient to him in verse 14. 
Jesus wants us to show our love for him in our obedience to him. Now, clearly, this is a friendship that's not perfectly reciprocal, right? Friends of Jesus cannot turn it around and say, Jesus will be my friend if he does what I say. No, it it doesn't quite work like that. Jesus' friends are the recipients of his love, and we are to be obedient to him. And this is remarkable when we consider that the very presence of God himself, the one who upholds the universe, calls us his friends. And I think verse 15 helps us see the depth of our relationship with Jesus. He says, no longer do I call you servants. It's probably helpful to know that two different times in the Gospel of John, Jesus referred to his disciples as servants. In John 12, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, they will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. But Jesus also says it in John chapter 13. He says, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So let's just be really clear. There's nothing wrong with being a servant of God, right? Better to be a footman in the door of the kingdom than still to be outside, right? Uh, But the term servant isn't enough to fully describe our role. And so Jesus also uses the word friend to show the the particular attention that he has for the love of his disciples and, and to keep that love for them on the forefront of their minds. See, we're not merely servants. We are also friends of Jesus. And and the difference is important, though, right? A servant is given direction, but not given the reason. A master does not involve his servants in his business, except for what they need to do to do their jobs. The master doesn't share strategy. He doesn't ask probing questions to them, uh, or even give the big picture of his plans. But shared knowledge and insight are actually important for true friendship. See, with a friend, we share our hopes and our plans. And what has Jesus shared with us? All that he has heard from the Father. He has done that in how he lived and in how he taught. Remember what Jesus said in in John chapter 5. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So while we may not know every bit of every part of every plan of God, from God's word, we know God. And we know his plan of redemption. We know of Jesus as the central figure in salvation. And we know the ultimate plan of God to bring his people to himself forever. Jesus has told his disciples everything that he's heard from the Father. We in turn know what Jesus is doing. He, he was planning to go to the cross. And so then we must do what he commands. Friendship with Jesus is defined by revelation, by knowing, and then imitation in doing. Friendship and serving one another are not against each other in in contrasting ideals. 
No, the difference is just meant to highlight the importance of knowing Jesus, of knowing God's plan of salvation. So brothers and sisters, we have a call to confidently serve in the kingdom of God because you are not servants, you are friends. We know what the Father is doing. He is making a way for redemption to be known in the whole world. And he's doing it through his son, Jesus. And so I think we overly complicate how we serve in the kingdom of God. Right, one time I was serving at a church and I had 13 people that wanted to teach fourth grade Sunday school, but I couldn't find a single teacher to teach third grade Sunday school. And they're like, well, God has just called me to do fourth grade, not third grade. And I'm like, is it really that much different? They're all kids. That's not true. They're all great. Uh, Does God want me to serve in the older children's class or the younger? Oh, I'm just not certain. Maybe I shouldn't do either one of them. Well, instead, we should try them both out for a few weeks and see which one fits. See, I think too often we want affirmation of a special gift from God when God is actually happy to use our normal effort over some special gifting. We can be confident, actually, that when we serve others, it's, we, we serve others be, because it's meant to highlight the humble love of Jesus, not even meant to highlight ourselves. So serving is to serve others, not ourselves. And so friendship finds its realization in loving service, in humble love. We are to know what the Father is doing. We have his word. And then we are to imitate Jesus in his humble love together. Let's look at this last part. Uh, the mission of the kingdom here. Verses 16 through 17. He says this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Friends, if you've ever wondered why Jesus chose those different disciples, well, I think we have some insight right here. The disciples weren't looking at Jesus' resume like, oh, is he the right Messiah to follow? No, Jesus searched them out specifically and intentionally and with his purpose in mind that they should bear fruit. Right On the very first day that Jesus met his disciples and called them into his service with the command, follow me, he chose them that they might share in his ministry. Do you realize it's no different for us today as well? If you've ever wondered why God would have mercy on you, if you've ever wondered his reasoning for why you'd be saved, part of his reasoning involves that we would worship him with our entire lives. And another part of his plan is so that we would display the love of God in our life in a way that shows the greatness of God in how we serve others. So our fruit that is to remain is to be pictures of the kingdom of God. We have been saved to enjoy God, to picture God on earth in our transformed lives of love and to be witnesses to the goodness of God. 
And so when we get to verse 16, it's really going back to that earlier metaphor of the chapter of Jesus being the vine and Christians being the branches which bear fruit or, or give evidence of being connected with Jesus. And so the fruit produced by us, the branches, is really uh, just showing evidence of being connected to the vine. It's actually the vine at work through us. So this is not some Dead Sea fruit, right, that, that it looks good, but as soon as you touch it, it just turns to dust. No, this is enduring fruit of our lives in union with the ever-living King Jesus. And so our fruit is to continue. It's to remain. And our motivation for bearing fruit is love from Jesus that brings joy. Right Earlier in verse 10, Jesus spoke of remaining in the Father's love by obeying his Father's commands. And so now that Jesus calls us, this isn't a new command that Jesus has given us, it's describing that we remain in Jesus' love, equating to obeying his commands. So abiding in Jesus is actively living out a love that is unending. It is actively, actively living out a love that is servant-like. It is actively living out a love that is sacrificial for one another. But if you notice this phrase, go and bear fruit, it also gives a hint of a mission to it also, doesn't it? Our mutual love among Jesus' disciples does not stay within the community of disciples, but inevitably results in mission to the world. So Jesus at the Last Supper isn't telling his disciples to go into some holy huddle. The purpose of fruit is to be seen, not hidden. And so their love for one another is to be so compelling that it invites others into it also. Look, let's just be really clear. It doesn't matter how evangelistic we are as a church if our love for one another is cold, if it's on our own terms, and if it's not sacrificial. It doesn't matter how many gospel tracts we pass out. It won't work. Because if we have a humble love problem in our body, then we actually also have a loving God problem in our body. Effective mission must come from humble love as a reflection of our love for God and our love from God. So the only way our mission of bearing fruit is dependent upon God through prayer in Jesus' name. So as the beginning of John 15 says, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Jesus concludes then this section with verse 17 the way it began. To do what we've been designed to do, to do what we've been saved to do, what we've been commanded to do, what we've been empowered to do, which is to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Friends, we're called to humbly love one another because the plan of God revealed in Jesus is to be lived out in Jesus' followers. The problem, one of the problems with the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 6, believers are taking one another to court, and Paul says they've already lost. That is not humble love. In 1 Corinthians 11, they're not waiting for the body when they gather for the Lord's Supper. 
And some are eating so much and drinking so much, they're eating and, and getting drunk and leaving none for other people. And friends, that is not humble love. Ephesus is warned in Revelation of losing their, losing their first love as a church body. Friends, remember, after Jesus rose from the dead, he's hanging out on the seashore with his disciples, and he sees Peter, and he is, is restoring Peter. And what does Jesus ask Peter three times? He says, Peter, do you love me? And when, Jesus, and when Peter said yes, Jesus called him into action. There is no effective mission for the kingdom of God in our community or the world around us without first humble love towards each other. Love from Jesus isn't meant to be confusing, and so our love for one another shouldn't be either. It should be empowered and pictured by our risen Savior. So that when Jesus were to ever ask us, do you love me? We don't just say yes. We demonstrate it with our very lives towards one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you love us. We are thankful that you would love us despite us. Lord, we are challenged from your word to, to intentionally, humbly serve one another. But Lord, we, we aren't called to do anything that Jesus hasn't already done for us. He has already humbly loved us. He has already served us. He's already sacrificed his own life for us. We are so thankful for the love that we have experienced in Christ. Let that fuel us and shape our love for one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, what a great reality that we are not ignorant of what God is doing, but in fact, by being his friends, he has shared with us all good things. Praise the Lord that we can love because he first loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Brothers and sisters, as we go out, let us be empowered to love humbly. Hear now our benediction from 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Enjoy the rest of your Lord's Day. Stick around and talk with one another and help us move the chairs out of the tiled area.